Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Peter Stitcher, and he'll be answering your questions on what fly for what bug. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Peter a question, just go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just look to the right on our website. You'll see a column there and a form to sign up. Just fill in your name, your email address, and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, which you're appreciated, if you'd share our podcast, and when you do, please use hash sign ask about fly fishing and also hash fly fishing. So, in, in fact, if you do, take a moment now and do it now. We do have some links on our homepage that will take you right out there, and you can share the uh, show tonight. Also wanted to let you know about a new social media app that I will be using and have been using for conversations on fly fishing. It's called Clubhouse. We've been hosting a room on Clubhouse every Thursday evening at 7 p.m. Mountain Time, and Clubhouse is like a conference call where people can talk with each other live. I have invited the top fly fishers that have been on my shows to join the conversation. And if you're a member of Clubhouse, just follow me on Clubhouse and you'll be notified when we open the rooms. If you're not a member, you need to have an iPhone because it's not available for Android yet, and you need to be invited. If you need an invitation, contact me at Roger at askaboutflyfishing.com. Again, it's Roger, R-O-G-E-R, at askaboutflyfishing.com. And I'll see if I can help you out and get you an invitation. So again, I'll be hosting the room on Clubhouse every Thursday night at 7 p.m. It gives you a chance to interact one-on-one with some of the best fly fishers in the world. So hope to see you there. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted. It's the property of the Knowledge Group Inc. Doing businesses ask about fly fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Peter Stitcher about what fly for what bug. The Colorado River at Lee's Ferry is called by some the world's largest spring creek. It's a massive, clear-running tailwater fishery that runs 15.5 miles from the base of the Glen Canyon Dam to the upper reaches of the Grand Canyon. At times, it gives the impression of being not one or two, but a series of parallel Spring Creek-like waterways. The fishing is great, and the scenery is gorgeous. Lee's Ferry Anglers provides professional guide service to this outstanding rainbow trout fishery, as well as food and lodging at Cliff Dwellers Restaurant and Lodge. See for yourself why Lee's Ferry is on every fly fisher's must-do list. Visit leesferryanglers.com. That's leesferryanglers.com. Or call them at 800-962-9755. It's 800-962-9755. Before we introduce Peter, I'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight for our drawing tonight. We'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Peter's section that says register for our free drawing. 
Click on that link, fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away two copies of Peter's video called Creating Order in Your Flybox, a Flybox Organization Guide. It's a great asset to have, and Peter takes you step-by-step step in breaking down how to populate your flyboxes for the best organization and effect on the stream. And I'm sure I'll be talking about that tonight. Now, here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. The question will be about something we talk about during the show, and you must submit your answer along with your name and location using the text box on our homepage. It's the same text box that you can ask questions during the show with. So just listen closely, take good notes, and at the end of the show, we'll ask the questions, and the first person to answer them correctly, and the second person as well will win Peter's video then. So our guest tonight is Peter Stitcher. Peter is an aquatic biologist and owner of Ascent Fly Fishing and River Oracle, Inc. As a biologist, Peter works across the United States in the assessment, restoration, and management of trophy trout waters, approaching the sport of fly fishing through the lens of a biologist. Peter strives to break down the sciences of entomology, fish feeding behavior, and fish habitat, use into easily applied fishing trips, tips, and tactics for the fly fisher. Armed with an extensive invertebrate database and more than 600,000 flies, Peter and his team of 45 full-time fly tires at Ascent specialize in the creation of biologist-crafted fly selections specific to trout foods and their life cycles, when and where you fish. Peter also released his first film titled Creating Order in Your Fly Boxes, we just talked about, and is a regular contributor to High Country Angler Magazine. Peter, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Roger, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here with you and your listeners tonight. Yeah, well, we're excited, too, because we're going to cover things that I think a lot of fly fishers are confused about in general, and maybe fish their whole life and never understand. So hopefully we can clear this, a lot of this up for folks tonight. So the plan, Peter, as we discussed, was to kind of go through the four major species, the, the mayflies, caddisflies, midges, and stoneflies, and kind of identify what the life cycle is and then how we match, best match the flies to those life cycles and when to fish them. So it's a big challenge. I know you're up for it. <laughs> so you ready? Yeah, let's do it. I mean, yeah, this is the, the question that every angler has been asking since the caveman. What are they biting on? And we're going <laughs> to hopefully you help go. your listeners be able to determine that themselves. Yeah, good, good. So there's a lot of, and I'm going to run through some kind of general things, some questions people ask, because I kind of think it sets the stage for as we dive into to each of the, the bugs that we're talking about tonight. But words have been used in the industry, such as suggestive, attractors, impressionistic, realistic, exact match. These are all descriptions that are used to kind of describe categories of flies. So I'm curious, what terms do you use when you're categorizing flies in this kind of view? Right, yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of flies in the shop and a lot of flies available for the, the fly fisher to utilize. So I break it down into, I guess, four or I guess three major categories, the largest being uh, generalists. And generalists are kind of like the Renaissance men of the river, close in size, close enough in profile, close in shape, that they can be used to match a host of different species for any given order of insects. So something like the parachute atoms, fish that in a couple of sizes, fish it well, and you've just matched almost every mayfly we have, say, in the Rockies. So that's our generalists. Attractors are the sexy, flashy ones that 
might have a realistic profile and uh, shape of a lot of our natural invertebrates, but they're flashy. It's something like the Rainbow Warrior, mirrored mylar materials, silver wire rib. It doesn't quite look like anything in nature, but it plays the role of uh, the wounded zebra in the herd. It's the nature of the predators to attack the one that's seen as vulnerable and different. And so our attractors stand out from the herd and they attract that aggression of our predator trout. And then true flies is kind of a term that we've coined, and that's for patterns that are specifically tied to match one genus or species in a very specific life cycle. So it's not going to have a crossover, something like a Helgramite pattern that we'd fish on the East Coast or the West Coast or even a little bit in the Midwest. That's not going to be mistaken as a mayfly or, or something else that's specifically tied for this one family, and it's really productive when tied fished well in those waters. So we have our generalists, our attractors, and our true flies. Good. Yeah, that's different descriptions than I'm used to, but makes it quite a bit simpler, I think, than some of the other terms that are out there being used. And you mentioned something that I've never heard that either. It's very interesting about the kind of the odd insect out, the, the wounded zebra or whatever, where attractors, I can see how they maybe sparkle, maybe they're broken in half or, or look that way because of the way they sparkle or whatever. But yeah, that's interesting. It makes them look different and more attractive. So there's these other kind of general questions that came up again I think uh, kind of sets the stage as we dig deeper into this. The Dale Yamamoto in uh, Deer Park, Illinois, wrote in, he says, what's more important, size, color, or shape? Right. Well, I would, I typically lump uh, size and shape together. So um, I'm saying one of the first things we're doing after we've sampled the water, after we've stained the water, looked at spider webs, kind of gathered the pieces of the menu once we get to the river, the very first thing is I'm going to match the approximate size and shape. So I, I lump those together. So, yeah, we're getting close. And then color would, would be right on the heels of those. And color is, again, adding that differentiation from 10,000 other trico spinners that are on the water, adding a little more pearl into the wing or another little feature to help delineate, distinguish your fly, catches the eye of the trout. Alpha predators are looking for easy meals, and those yep. visual distinctions of color can help set them apart. So size, shape, those I count as one, and then color. Yeah, there's always a discussion of, well, we'll talk about this, <laughs> I guess, in the next question. Let me just pose this one. Thomas in Flagstaff, uh, Arizona, wrote in and said, there's a balance between fly selection presentation and drift, drift depth and location. How important do you think fly selection and timing are on a scale of 1 to 10? So he's bringing up the idea of right fly, right location, right, with the proper presentation. Yeah, so you know, I feel like he's hit on a couple of the major pillars of what it takes to be a successful fly fisher. Fly selection is matching the hatch, determining what food's in the water, what the fish are eating. Presentation, I would say, out of all of these, is the most important. I feel like the, the founder of Patagonia proved this when he fished parachute atoms for a whole year, and he caught a lot of fish. So he had a really solid generalist pattern. He fished it very well, and he caught fish. So presentation, again, is, is going to be combined with drift, and that's getting the right speed, the right depth, not getting a weird drag from your line, getting pulled through the current. So presentation is going to trump fly selection. Location, reading the water is going to be one of the three pillars. It's hard to sit on a stool with only two legs, so you're going to have some strength in all three of these areas. And 90% of the fish are typically utilizing about 10% of a live water system, so our river systems. You need to be able to read the water. You need to be able to get your fly 
in that right position, moving at the right speed and the right depth. And then fly selection, it's going to be right up there. It's hard to put that in a 1 to 10. How important yeah. do you think fly selection is? Let's call fly selection uh, 7. Okay. Okay. Yeah, because, you know, they, this is, gets brought up quite often is if you have a kind of generalist pattern, you can catch fish as long as you get it into the zone, right? And that's less important than having it look exactly like what's there, in other words, matching the hatch. Is that the view that you take as well? Well, I think as much as, as an aquatic biologist that really specializes in matching down to the life stage of the bugs on the waters our clients are fishing when they're doing that, I mean, look at our competition anglers. They kind of throw matching the hatch out the window and mm. focus heavily on that depth and drift and removing kind of hinge points within their rig so that they can very quickly sense that little nerve tick on the bottom of the river with those tight line rigs. So our Euro nymphers, the flies in their boxes, I mean, looks like a parade of peacocks a lot of time. I mean, they're heavy on the attractor side and overall just heavy patterns. And so they put matching the hats very low and they catch a ton of fish. So I think depending on your style of fishing, if you're pro proficient at your presentation and getting those right depths and weight and good drifts, you can catch a lot of fish. If you're proficient at really matching the hatch, you might be able to give them a run for their money, even if your drift and presentation isn't as good. So there's a case for both sides. Yeah, yeah. Some of the videos I've seen taken underwater, and maybe you've done a lot of this too, are showing trout taking almost everything going by into their mouth. Spitting much of it out, but it almost appears like they don't really know sometimes whether it's food or not. Do a taste test and decide. So maybe that, I don't know, is that something you've observed underwater at all? Yeah, it is. I mean, I did used to do snorkel surveys as a biologist back in the Pacific Northwest, but I know even doing stomach samples of pumping certain fish, like on the bighorn, we'll see a lot of rainbow trout with a high algae content in their stomachs. And that might be that they're grazing on crustaceans along the vegetation and algae a little bit more, but you don't see that as much in the brown trout. So yeah, it's, I mean, certainly we've all, I think we're missing a lot more strikes than we think we are from that quick take and spit reflex of the right. trout. So right. There's a lot more going on under the surface than we know. Yeah. Charlie Phelps wrote in and said, asked, he says, I've, I've been spending a lot of time fly fishing for trout during the last four or five years. I use a tight line nymphing approach roughly half the time and use streamers and dry flies the rest of the time. From what I've read and watched, many of the successful tight line competitive anglers have huge amounts of success with nymphs such as Lance Egan's Red Dart Nymph and Devin Olson's Blowtorch Nymph. These, and these nymphs do not look like any natural to the human eye. In your mind, why are these flies successful? And do you feel that anglers would have more success if they correctly matched the hatch instead of using these brightly colored nymphs? Might it come down to presentation being the key and colorless uh, importance? That's basically what we just talked about. And the blowtorch and the red dart are, are some of those contact nipping style heavy flies that you were just talking about, right? Right. Well, I mean, let's frame the question like this. Is watercolor painting or realistic painting with acrylics the more beautiful art form? And, and that's really up to the user, right? The artist. What do you enjoy doing? I personally love that aspect of walking into a river and feeling like I am joining the trout and discovering what's on the menu and, and really trying to match that and join them where they're at, where those bugs are at in the mm -hmm. water column, which life stages are most prevalent. Other people really love to feel that tip and tap of that tight line rig or Euro rig on the bottom of the river. 
and that just that little pinch, it's almost like a nerve going down to the bottom of the river. There's nothing between that rod tip and the trout, and, and they love that style. So certainly, again, you can be excellent and really hone in your presentation with those tight line nymphing rigs and be very successful. And you can be, I think, equally successful by using traditional like North American nymphing rigs or dry fly rigs, depending on, on where the fish are eating and really matching the hatch. So I think those are both great skills to have in your belt. But again, there's not a wrong way to, to fish. If you want a tight line nymph, it's those attractors. We're getting those flies down into that zone on the bottom of the river where those fish feel safe. They don't have to expend any energy really to drift to the side to take those nymphs a couple inches off the bottom. And yeah, and again, we're tapping into that predator nature with these exaggerated characteristics. So there's a lot of things going for the, the red dart and the blowtorch nymph. Yeah, just as, yeah. Uh, you know, but the other, other style is just as valid. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. And there's, to me, just we think, I think anyways, of fly fishing being an art form and a science. And the art part of it is casting. The art part of it is creating flies. And the science part is which best, which is putting the flies and the bugs together and, and trying to, you know, fool the trout in that manner. And that part alone, which we hopefully we'll talk more about tonight, is that selection and matching process is, is again, kind of art and science. <laughs> uh, and I think that's probably why you enjoy it so much in, in that challenge. I'm just going to pose this question because I don't really, it's Don Can in uh, Colorado, but I'm not going to have you really answer this because I want you to answer it as we go through the different species of insects here about organization and fly boxes. So he says, I have fly boxes full of hundreds of different flies. It's, it is often confusing to try and figure out which to use and has made fishing less fun. Can you recommend, say, six flies for the spring and six flies for the summer? And what would be good to go-to flies? So let's just leave that hanging while we take a break here. And then when we come back, Peter, I know you can answer this question. Maybe not the six flies, but a method for him to get organized. So let's let that hang there, and we'll be right back. There are not many places in the world where you can fly fish for permit, tarpon, bonefish, and snook, all within a few miles of each other. But you can in Belize. When you fish with Charlie Leslie fly fishing, you're on a private island and are only minutes away from some of the finest fly fishing in Belize. You start out from Placentia and take just a 30-minute boat ride to your lodging on the island. Once you're there, you'll be fishing lagoons full of tarpon and targeting permit on the flats of Permit Alley. Bonefish and snook are ready for your cast as well. Charlie Leslie, with over 50 years of experience in the waters of Belize, and his son Marlon Leslie and their other hand-picked guides know the local waters like no others. Book your next Belize adventure now with Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing. Visit charlieleslieflyfishing.com or call 303-430-4634. Again, that's charlieleslieflyfishing.com or call 303-430-4634. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Peter Stitcher about what fly for what bug. If you'd like to ask Peter a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. Receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Okay, so Peter, uh, I also asked my guest what's going on in your fly fishing world, so tell people about your activities. What do you do? 
Yeah, so our day-to-day, we have we employ 45 full-time fly tires. And so there's a lot of sourcing of materials, taking wholesale orders from shops, getting new guides on our pro form, and then also fielding questions from clients that are calling in with maybe a text image of a specific bug they want to match or needing some pins dropped on Google Maps of where to fish or needing some holes filled in their fly box. So we specialize in our clients telling us where they're fishing in North America, Patagonia, or New Zealand, and they can give us the specific regions, waters, and seasons. And then we craft these selections of flies that are organized by the hatch and life stage for their waters. We tie a lot of flies, owning our own factories. So I think we're tying about 4,500 dozen flies over the next two weeks, and, and we're just picking up for the season. So uh, we're hiring people. We're having a great time. And if you're in the Denver Littleton area and want to stop by, we even offer you a beer if you come by afternoon. So, yeah, we have a great time at the shop. <laughs> well, I didn't know that. Peter, I'm going to stop yeah. by now. <laughs> you're only 45 minutes away, Roger. You're always welcome. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Well, the beer, I mean, what kind of beer is it, Peter? <laughs> it's, it's PBR. I don't know if it's worth the drive. Oh, PBR. it's cold yeah. and it's wet. It's cold My and it's wet. My uncles used to drink PBRs in Chicago. I mean, that was like the beer of choice back then. Right. But, yeah, I was too young back then to drink it, but I, I remember them drinking it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> you got to be careful. You don't want to offend your uh, your upper Midwest like listeners. No, those babies go down easy, too. So good, good. And why don't you drop your, your domain name, your website, so that people right. know where to find you. Yeah, so we have over 600,000 flies in the shop, and we list the hatch species and life cycle next to every single fly that we sell. So if you oh, wonder wow. what these flies are in your box and you don't know what the, what they imitate, you can just uh, look those up on our website and we'll start to help you create some knowledge behind uh, your flies. And our website is Ascent Fly Fishing, A-S-C-E-N-T flyfishing.com. And uh, yeah, we have eight years worth of blog entries. We have our YouTube channel. We have tons of resources to help you start to think like a fish and break down that science into something you can tie onto the end of your rod. Yeah, and flies vary from about a dollar and a quarter to a dollar a piece, depending on quantities. Good. Very good. Well, thank you, Peter. And so check him out and check his place out on, online or in person and be looking for that PBR and be all set. All right, everyone. Well, let's dig in. Let's try to make some sense of this, Peter, for everybody. I mean, we left it off with Don's question, fly boxes full of hundreds of flies. Sounds to me like he's been into a lot of fly shops and been told you need this, that, and the other today on such and such a river. And so he picks them up and then they go in the box and then he hits another river and make adds to the collection. And before you know it, you have hundreds of flies in your box, right? Isn't that the way yeah, it I goes? Think, yeah, I think that's the definition of insanity, isn't it? Or it's something <laughs> like that. Yeah. yeah. We've all done it. Yeah. So let's talk about mayflies first. And what I'd like you to do is kind of mix in. We had mentioned your video, which is a a methodology of organizing your fly boxes. But as we go through these different flies, maybe you can kind of tell how you would organize those in the box. And it certainly sounds like Don could use a, I hope he wins that video tonight (laughs) so that he can, yeah, and, and sort that out. But let's talk about mayflies first. And first describe to us, what the life cycle is of a mayfly, and let's just start there. All right, I'm going to go a level above that, and for your listeners, let's define what a life cycle is. And so a life cycle, for any of our bugs, our our major families of insects are mayflies, caddisflies, stoneflies, and midges. It is the point from the egg 
hatches underwater on the bottom of the lake or the river to the point as that aquatic insect matures from the juvenile under the water. It might be a larva or a nymph, depending on the family of insects we're looking at. And to the point that it makes its transition through the, the water column to the surface, breaks the surface of the water, and at the surface of the water, our different families of insects begin that hatch, we call it the hatch, where they shed that exoskeleton, shed that shuck, and they transition. They spread out their wings, and they transition into their adult life form. Our insects will then spend a determined amount of time, depending on the family and the, the genus and the species. It can be as little as 30 minutes. It can be as much as a month out of the water. But across the board, 99.9% .9 of the life cycle of these four major aquatic families we're going to be talking about, 99% of it happens under the surface of the water. And we're going to see that's why 80% of fish feeding in large part happens underwater. That's where the foods live in most of the time. But at the surface, our, the life cycle progresses to these adult life stages where the insects spread their wings, they fly off the water, and they reproduce. They mate. They return to the river to lay their eggs, and as those eggs hit the, the bottom of the lake or the river again and hatch, the cycle has made its complete circle. So that is the life cycle. Okay. Um, yeah. So our mayfly life cycle starts off in the egg and hatches within a matter of, of days to, to generally weeks into the mayfly nymph. And the nymph will spend six months to a year, depending on our different genus and species, Again, we say stuff like genus and species, trout, they don't speak Latin or, or Greek, so they're not impressed if you do. But our mayfly nymph lives six months to a year underwater. And then there's going to be a certain season when each of these species feels that drawl of nature to, to hatch, to make their way to the surface of the water. And so we have hundreds of species of mayflies in North America. And depending on the region, depending on the season, we'll see the same species roughly uh, within a week or two of the same time each year, beginning that emergence. So the nymph, uh, we will have emerging nymph patterns, and that is the one that's left the safety of the bottom of the lake or the river and begins to swim towards the surface. And this provides unique opportunities for the trout, and so we tie unique flies for these, for this stage of the nymph between the bottom of the river and the surface. At the surface of the water, the next life stage, as that nymph breaks the surface of the water, its shuck or the back of its exoskeleton opens and the wings of the dun begin to emerge at the surface of the water. So our next life stage is the dun. And the dun has a few characteristics that help define it on the water and in our fly box, a smoky gray wing, shorter tails, more muted body color. And at the surface of the water, that dun will travel a ways until its wings are spread out, dried off, and it can safely and effectively leave the water. And the mayfly dun flies into the streamside vegetation, and between four to 48 hours is the adult life stages of our mayfly, our dry life stages. So six months to a year underwater, four to 48 hours is a, in our adult dry life stages. That done, once it hits the streamside vegetation, hatches a second time. So it breaks back out of its exoskeleton again and emerges into the spinner. And the spinner, Similar profile, similar wing shape, a lot of similar characteristics, has a longer set of tails, much more vivid body colors, and pearly glass color opaque wings. These spinners then will swarm over the river where they mate in flight. And then the males, I mean, they don't even eat or drink uh, once they're out of the water. Their sole function really is to reproduce and die. 
And then the males fall dead on the water and their wings relax. Look like a little airplane floating down the river. And the females will bounce up and down a little bit, this little wave-like dance before they dip down into the surface of the water and they just go with the flow as they lay their eggs and then they expire. And we call that the spinner fall. And those individual mayflies are the spent spinner. And each of those stages in the life cycle, I think can really be summed up as different courses in the meal. So it's important for us to be able to move with those trout. Are they on the breakfast course? Are they moving into brunch and lunch? Are they on to dinner? And so based on the feeding behavior, based on what we're sampling, based on what we're seeing in the water and on top of the water, we want to go where the highest concentration of calories are, join the fish in those life cycles, maybe have one of our patterns imitating that next life cycle. Where are those fish going to be feeding next? So kind of preempting that so we're staying right in the bite. And, and then it, it's going to help us if we can understand this, we can set up our boxes in a logical way. It helps us to easily trace that and preempt that bite. Now, when you, so the nymph is leaving the bottom of the stream, do we really have an emerging mayfly that is emerging as it rises, or does it only emerge at the surface? That's a great question. I think in fly shop nomenclature, when we talk about emergers, 90% of the emerger patterns, they're also, they're nymph patterns, and most of them are wet patterns. And so the different characteristics, while it's still a nymph pattern, we might see a little bit of an, a wing pad tied into the back. Right. So something like the RS2 or the Chocolate Thunder, we have a little foam pad, a little um, right. Antron yarn, a little flash. And so it's almost like that back starting to split, that wing starting to pop. Also, we'll see, whereas a lot of our, our mayfly nymph patterns that are meant to imitate that early nymph stage in the bottom of the river, a lot of those are tied to straight shank hooks. Think about our pheasant tails, our hare's ears, our, our prince nymphs, things like that. And our mergers, we're going to see more and more of those for those wet emergers tied to a curved shank hook. And things like the WD-40, the chocolate thunder, the bars emerger. And that imitates that swimming kind of undulating profile of that nymph making its way to the surface. So some similarities, but yeah, most of our mergers we're, we're counting as wet. So do they, do the mayflies wings start to emerge underwater or does that not happen until they reach the surface? Or am I splitting you know, here? Yeah, or... <laughs> well, it's a little bit. I mean, the river is not, it doesn't have like nice sharp landings where a bug can transition. It's like, now that my wings are out, I'm on top of the water. They're getting sucked back under. They're hitting a little swirl of current. Also, our mayflies, they're somewhat indecisive. So typically for a lot of our species, the mayfly nymph will kick off the bottom of the river, start making its way to the surface, and then it will change direction and head back down, and then head back up oh. and head back down. And so there's a lot of up and down before it finally commits and, and hits the surface. And then mm -hmm. there's a tension as it's trying to break through that surface uh, tension and get free of that pressure. So it's a long progression up uh, to the top of the river. And that whole while, those mayfly nymphs or emergers are, are kind of running with the bulls. They've left the sanctuary of the rocks on the bottom of the river, they're not quite to the refuge of the air. So this is when trout really key in and gorge. Super productive life stage for the angler. Right. So in matching this hatch, and how many levels of flies do we need to match? You mentioned the mature mayfly nymph coming off of the, the rocks on the bottom of the stream. We talk about an emerger. Kind of walk us through what flies we need and, and maybe give us some examples of what you would use to imitate those stages. Right. So as to which life stage is going to be most productive, 
for our different mayflies is going to vary a bit based on, on the genus or species that we're matching. Something like our blueing olives or our betas, they are a free-swimming mayfly. We have a number of different species under that betas umbrella. And so they're not clinging to the rocks like our green drakes, our gray drakes, and crawling around on the bottom of the river. They're typically fairly active in the water columns throughout their nymph life cycle. So patterns like the juju betas or the disco betas or really small pheasant tails are going to be productive year-round when matching the blueing olives. Likewise, they're fairly indecisive on the rise. So your RS2s, your WD40s, your bar mergers, also very productive. Patterns like the, I'm sorry, hatches like the trico mayfly, their life stage that really kind of brings out the largest feed, the, the most prolific and consistent strikes are the spinners, which is an adult dry life cycle. And what that trico lacks in size, it makes up for in quantities where you get these rafts of trico mayflies floating down the river and a, a trout can rise up and grab 50 of them at a time once they've expired and they're floating down the river after spawning. So depending on the hats that I'm matching to, and you can see this in our half specific selections on our website, I might prioritize more nymph patterns for our blooming olives. I might prioritize more dry patterns for something like the tricup. So we've kind of broken that down as to which life stages are more successful or more important for, for our different hatches, but it's not across the board. But yeah, did that so I guess I would have been looking at that, say we probably have the nymph, maybe the emerger, the adult, and the spinner as the four major categories that we're trying to imitate, at least for mayflies. Yeah, and I definitely depending on which one we're talking about. Your nymph on the bottom of the river, we have your mid bottom of the river to the surface, kind of wet emerger. The duns are those hanging out right in that surface film, drifting down right. the river before they take off. And then a lot of our dun and spinner patterns will cross over. So something like a parachute pattern, we have a parachute for everything. We have a parachute pale morning dun, a parachute blooming olive, a parachute blue dun. And it's close enough in profile and shape oftentimes it'll cross over for both that freshly emerged dun and the spinner that's just re returned to the river to lay eggs. So there's kind of this larger mm -hmm. kind of clump of dun spinner patterns. And then I would say for dessert, we have our spent spinners. And that's underappreciated, underfished, but super productive life cycle. It's easy pickings. They're not even, they're not moving anymore. It's got, they just got to right. rise and take them. So we should be fishing them. Yeah. Yeah, and probably the most recognizable one is probably the trico spinner that we all know more than any other. Absolutely. Uh, out I mean, there, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, now, and then taking this selection into your fly box, then how would this go into your fly box? So, yeah, when the method that we've outlined in creating order in your fly box, which is available for streaming online or our DVD, it's how we pack every fly box that leaves the shop. Every biologist packs selections organized by this. And... The way that the trout follow and feed on these insects through their life cycle is the way that I want them packed in your box. So with ease, you can put your finger on the row, matching the family and hatch that's going off. And by running your finger across that row, just like reading a book, you progress through the life, through the life stages of this insect, all the way to its end. So when we pack a fly box, one page is dedicated to all of your aquatic juvenile life cycles under the water. So I'll have a mayfly row, and on the left-hand side of that row, we have our mayfly nymphs. And as those nymphs progress through their life or through the water column, you run your finger across that wet row a couple of inches, and you've moved into your mayfly emergers, so your emerging patterns for those specific hatches. 
as soon as the mayfly hits the surface of the water, we're going to get some feedback from trout. They start to rise. They start to swirl. Uh, we start to see them thinning a little bit. That's our cue. We're getting feedback. Time to flip the box over. And we return to that same row back on the left-hand side of that page, and we meet that insect in its done life cycle, breaking through, uh, if it's our mayflies, breaking through the surface of the water. And as you run your finger across that dry row, you move from duns into spinners and then into our spun spinners. So it's just like reading a book, all on one row, stick with the row, move across it, and you've hit all of the courses in the meal. How do you handle being all the selections we have nowadays? I mean, for a mayfly nymph, we could have 10 different patterns that are popular out there nowadays, right? Do you take two rows then <laughs> for mayflies? Or, or do you personally narrow it down and not have such a large selection to, to pick from? Well, this gets back to our painting analogy a little bit, right? I mean, do you want to have five trays of watercolors so you can paint every hue of green and brown? Or are you content with a few primary colors and then you can make your, your work out of that? So for some people, we can condense this into one box where we have mid-row, mayfly, caddis row, stonefly row, terrestrial rows, edible others like worms and eggs. Or for, who was it? It was a gentleman, Don from, uh, he's here in Colorado. He's got hundreds of flies. I mean, gosh, if I'm going to have to put my fly boxes in my will to my kids because there's a lot invested in those. I got thousands of flies. So, yeah, if you have that many flies, maybe we would take this kind of uh, methodology and we would create a mayfly box where you have multiple rows, but you'll have your blooming olives and then you'll have your pale morning duns, and then you'll have your green drakes and your gray drakes. Or if you're on the East Coast, your sulfurs, your hendersons, your eastern green drakes, things like that. So you can dedicate a whole box to one family of insects or just a row, depending on your style of fish and what you like to carry on the river. Okay, okay. Bob in Endicott, New York, wrote in, he says, I mostly fish dry flies on the western branch of the Delaware in New York, and many times during the typical hatch, the trout will ignore the duns on the surface, but will be feeding just under the surface, as can be seen by the swirls on the water. During a typical hatch, like the Hendrickson's, how should I rig up for this situation? Use a, dry, use a dropper off the dry? How far below the surface should it hang? Which bug should I tie on for that hatch? That's a great question. So something like the Hendrickson hatch, let's just say it's a dark Hendrickson for the sake of this. We... I want to kind of line up the menu according to these different uh, life stages and, and where the fish are feeding now is not necessarily where they're going to be feeding in half an hour. So the hot pattern right now and the depth that the fish are keen in at this moment is going to shift as the concentration of food reaches the surface of the water, starts to leave the surface of the water, those trout will move with it. And so for the sake of example, based on the parameters he gave us, I might use something like just a simple size 16 pheasant tail, all right, sorry, lead fly might be a, if they're swirling, that means they're not really quite, doesn't sound like they're taking that done, he said. So something like right. a, a Hendrickson sparkle done, which is, it's a done emerger. It's just kind of stuck in the film. And there's this just fan of wings, this freshly spread wings and this chunk of material off the tail of that sparkle done. So it's still kind of hanging out in the shuck, still looks very vulnerable, sits pretty low in the film of the water, but it's technically a dry fly. My number two might be something like a large Greg's emerger. And the Greg's emerger is similar to a bar's emerger, with the exception of uh, there's a mercury beadhead, so a glass beadhead, has a little bit of a flashback. And I have had 
100 fish days, several years in a row on the PMD Greg's Emerger. So excellent emerger pattern. And if they're swirling, I'm not actually seeing them thinning. Maybe they're feeding 8 to 10 inches under the water. So I might drop that. That's an unweighted pattern. I might drop that two feet behind my sparkle gun, two feet to 18 inches, somewhere in there. My third fly, I don't know as far as regs in New York where he's fishing. If they are allowed three flies, some states don't allow that. But if I could fish a third fly, it might be a something like a pheasant tail, just a simple pheasant tail. And again, that behavior of the trout, the feedback from the trout, that activity very close to that surface column is saying, you don't need to go super deep. You don't need to weight it really heavy. So I'd probably go with an unweighted pheasant tail and drop that another 18 inches behind that Griggs Emerger. One other thing that I would do as I'm rigging that, I would probably rig all of those eye to eye. So as opposed to tying off the curve of the hook in that sparkle done and the curve of the hook in my Griggs Emerger, if my tippet size allows and the eye of the hook allows, I would tie into the eye of each of those. And that a little bit of a different topic, but we'll have a really solid hook set and it's much less likely for those bottom flies to then catch on some debris or something in the river and, and release that trout unintentionally. So a real solid hook set as well. Cool, cool. Very good. That's a very good example. Hope that helps you out, Bob. And let's take a quick break here, and we'll come right back, and we'll let's talk caddisflies next. So All give right. me just 30 seconds, and we'll do just that. Enrico Puglisi flies prides themselves with creating unique and one-of-a-kind flies and fly tying material. Enrico has been experimenting with durable synthetic and natural materials to create flies that catch fish for more than 20 years. His innovative products include brushes, fibers, and components have made a major impact on the direction of saltwater fly fishing, and his methods and materials are respected worldwide. Whether you want your flies hand-tied for you or would like to tie your own, be sure to visit Enrico Puglisi flies and browse through their online catalog. Visit epflies.com and do a little shopping today. Again, that's epflies.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Peter Stitcher about what fly for what bug. If you would like to ask Peter a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send you your question. We'll try to get as many of those questions answered tonight. Let me just see. A question came in from Mike Brewer in, in St. Louis here, Peter. He says, do you think there is much merit to tying 24 and 26 midge patterns, or am I straining my eyes and challenging my tying skills unnecessarily? Well, I mean, it is certainly entertaining when someone asks what they're biting on when you're fishing in Missouri for, you know, McLeod rainbows and say, on this 26 and they about fall in the river you don't need to do that in missouri certainly but you know in some of our western rivers specifically like san juan tailwater below navajo reservoir 26s and 28s make a difference but again if you like it as an exercise or for bragging rights just to show people what you can tie in missouri 26s and 24s you can not necessary i think uh, 18s to, to 22s will be more than ample for your hatches yeah, it's really warm there, long growth season. Those are big bugs for us here in Colorado. You don't need to go too small. Yeah, it seems like most of the flies that you see online, like, and I'm assuming yours as well, you don't see much for sale in the below 24, maybe 24 is the break point. Wouldn't you say from a commercial standpoint? Because we at Ascent are matching to specific rivers, we go down to 26s, but you know, for okay. most of our patterns, it is ending at 24s. Like, I don't tie a dry fly smaller than a 24. Yeah, yeah, that's tough on the tires. <laughs> that's 
<laughs> yeah, you got to have good eyes, that's for sure. Okay, let's talk about the caddis then. And we have uh, a bit of a different life cycle with caddis, right? We do. Our caddis goes through complete metamorphosis. So what they look like under the water is completely transformed. They look completely different out of, outside the water. So whereas our mayflies, and, and as we'll see here shortly with our stoneflies, they have a mid-life cycle under the water. Our caddis have a larva life cycle. It's kind of caterpillar-like. Our larva will take one of three forms. We have our case-building caddis, which is the vast majority of our caddis species. They'll collect some sand and gravel or vegetation, and they will cobble together this little RV-like cone that they encase their abdomen in, and they crawl around dragging this little case of material behind them. So we have our, our case-building caddis, and that's most of our species. We have a net-spinning caddis, and they will kind of cast this silk net out into the bottom of the river to collect food. And then we have some free-living caddis, and we have a lot of those more. Appalachia, East Coast, our and or green rockworm is kind of a common name you'll hear around the stream or in the shop. So, but common characteristics, big pincer-like mouths, they have legs, caterpillar-like body, gills along the abdomen, pretty distinctive, and they're going to kind of stand out from our midges that also have a larva life cycle. So it goes larva. All of our caddis at some point, whether they start off as a case builder, net spinner, or free living caddis, they all have to build a case eventually. So think about like an aquatic, uh, I'm sorry, a terrestrial butterfly. They build this cocoon and they begin that metamorphosis process into the adult. Our caddis do that same thing underwater and they transition into the pupa. They begin to pupate. And that is when they start to push out those adult appendages of antennas and long legs and wings. The caddis pupa then is what we would consider our merger. They break out of that case. They start swimming towards the surface. And they do a lot of that up and down dance that our mayflies also did. Caddis pupa then hit the surface of the water and they don't linger. They split out of their shuck and they fly off the water into their adult life form. So we have caddis larva, case caddis, caddis pupa and adults. The adults will hang out for a couple weeks to a month, and then they will return to the river to lay their eggs. Okay, okay. So we have different stages to imitate here than we, we did with the, the mayflies. So primarily we've got the larva. Well, which ones are, are most fishable? Is it the larva? Yeah, the, the larva are very don't? fishable. Larva are fishable. Typically with those cases, our caddis are living down in the, the nooks and crannies on the bottom of the rivers. We also have caddis and lakes, but they're fairly secure until runoff. So we're entering a season at higher flows. We see higher percentages of caddis suspended in drift, as well as some of these case caddis. And so case caddis and caddis larvae at times of high flow are certainly productive and need to be fished. They need to be represented in your box. Our caddis pupa, because of that indecisive nature, that up and down motion of a lot of our species, also super productive and stuff like the graphic caddis or the chewy caddis or some of like uh, Morsh's hot wire caddis, great pattern. The La Fontaine caddis, uh, sparkle caddis. And that's been catching fish for 70 years and it's gonna catch them for another 170 years. So yeah. also very important life stage. And then our caddis are typically pretty fast at leaving the surface of the water. So whereas in our mayflies, we had lots of done patterns that imitate these drifters that are spending prolonged periods of time on the surface of the water. We don't have many dry caddis emerger patterns because they're pretty proficient at leaving the water. And so we move right to our adult kind of frantically fluttering 
dry caddis with those tufted wings like the elk hair caddis, parachute caddis, tent wing caddis, things like that, foam caddis. So the dry is certainly, I think, everyone's favorite live stage the fish for the caddis. Yeah, and the fish are on those and make it really exciting to when you're getting all that surface action. Yeah. So we've really got three kind of patterns to imitate then with the caddis, right? Yep. The larva, the pupa, pupa, and the adult. And then the adult. And now the caddis dive back down, right, to the lay their eggs, or, or is that just certain species? Certain ones? Yep, yeah. certain species do. So the egg layer will take one of, I guess, is it three or four forms? vast majority of our caddis are dive bombers. It's like, think about, gosh, we just finished Easter. My kids are like, right before I came upstairs to do this show, they're like, can we have peeps? And they're with my girlfriend. I'm like, yeah, go ahead. Eat, eat peeps, eat Cadbury eggs. I don't have to deal with it. And they're going to be bouncing <laughs> off the wall. And that is how caddis flies out in the water. If you see chaos in the flight, in these egg laying behavior, that bouncing on top of the water that is our caddis. So vast majority of our caddis are bouncers. They're skittering and dancing on top of the water. Some of our caddis will actually sit in streamside vegetation and release their eggs from above the water, whereas some of our caddis are also divers, or they'll crawl back under the water to lay their eggs. So, I mean, you can certainly drown a lot of dry caddis patterns and have a lot of success depending on the hats that you're going to be matching. But that's not where you'd spend most of your time fishing for the no. caddis, right? Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And uh, there was a specific question. David Silver is asking about patterns to fish in caddis patterns to fish in October. And I, you can probably pronounce that for me. <laughs> the, I'm not even going to try. Yeah. I, oh, I, you're I, not uh, either. Okay. Yeah, oh, that makes it, yeah. It's the dicomochus or something like that larva. Do you know that, or can we talk to that? Yeah. So our October okay. caddis. Yeah, okay. that's, it's a big caddis, and we, I spent a lot of time surveying streams in the Pacific Northwest, and we had a ton of October caddis there. And, I mean, if you break open the case of this October caddis, this is like a size 8 caddis larva, and they are bright yellow. So on our website, I call it our net spinning caddis, our woven net spinning caddis, but it's a beadhead woven caddis and has that bright yellow and orange weave. So it's a bomber-proof pattern. And it's an eights and tens. It's really big. The Moorish uh, October caddis pupa is another one. It's tens and twelves, really large, bright orange, really bright. And that's a soft hackle pattern. That's a good one for that pupa to fish it on the rise. So I'm fishing my beadhead woven caddis larva, the net spinning caddis for the larva. I'm fishing a beadhead rock roller caddis. So our October caddis, their cases are made out of sand and gravel. And so our rock roller caddis, is it's tied similar to how you would stack like deer hair on a bass bug, but except we use rubber leg material and little bits of gold, gold flashaboo. So it looks like with the browns and whites and blacks of that rubber leg material stacked. And once we cut that, it looks like a sand case with a little bit of pyrite in it. And I just totally geek out on that. I'm like, yeah, I, uh, I'm looking at the mineral content. I'm like, I need this in my caddis, case caddis. <laughs> so we got that. We have the Moorish caddis pupa, which is a great, kind of mid-column to surface emerger, let that swing and, and rise all the way to the surface. And then you'll see a very typical October caddis dries. And so long antennas, double wing, blaze orange, kind of burnt orange bodies. In a pinch, though, you can fish an orange stimulator. Close enough mm -hmm. in size and profile, maybe just trim the tail fibers off, and a size 12 to 14 orange stimulator will get the job done in a pinch. 
Boy, those uh, are exciting the way you described them and colorful <laughs> compared to elk yeah. here, caddis that we're, we so often look at. So, well, good. David, I hope that helped you out and what to fish for those October caddis. Need to well, take another? If, if, yeah, go ahead. Oh, really quick. Yeah, if, if people yeah. want to check on our website, they can search by hatch. So they can go on, they look at caddis, look at species-specific flies, and they can search October caddis or any specific hatch, the squalas for our stoneflies or a pale evening done, and we list. We have every life cycle of that specific pattern under each of our species. So they can search by species as well on the website. Cool, cool. Very good. All right, let's take a quick break, and we'll come back and uh, talk about midges next. So hang tight. We'll be right back. Fly Fishers International needs your support. Its conservation projects at both the national and club level are addressing critical issues of importance to fly fishers. The organization provides grants to help with restoration of habitats like the Wolf Creek in Idaho and Sands Creek in Delaware County, New York, and funds projects that collect valuable data about fish and their habitats like the Peacock Bass Study in Miami. FFI's core values remain unchanged to serve as a strong advocate for fly fishing in all waters for all fish and to preserve and to promote the arts of fly casting and fly tying and to help ensure future generations can continue to enjoy those one-of-a-kind experiences. These efforts won't be nearly as effective without your help. So if you're not already a member, we invite you to join Fly Fishers International as they work to cultivate conservation, education, and community within the sport of fly fishing. Join Fly Fishers International today and help support their fine work. For more information, go to their website at flyfishersinternational.org. That's flyfishersinternational.org. Dot org. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Peter Stitcher about what fly for what bug. If you'd like to ask Peter a question, go to our homepage, fill out that form, send it in, and we'll see if we can get it answered on the show tonight. Okay, now we're talking about midges. So where, how, oh, one more question about caddisflies. What's their lifespan compared to the mayflies? Right. So most of our caddis, it's a generation per year. So they're going to spend about 48 to 50 weeks subsurface as a larva and through that pupation process until they hit the surface of the water. Then typically two to, to four weeks, depending on species, as an adult. So longer you know, period of time outside of the water, but uh, still heavily skewed towards those aquatic life cycles. So we got to be ready to nymph. Now, what happens to all these insects as midges that we know are around during the winter time all year long? But these caddisflies and mayflies, what happens during the winter? Are there eggs just laying in the gravel, so to speak, and waiting? Right, right. That's so, I mean, typically they will have hatched pre-winter for most of our families. Are the life cycles of aquatic insects can be kind of visually seen almost in like a garden analogy. So we're going to have most of our species fruiting and ripe and ready for the menu at their biggest sizes in the warmer months, just like we're harvesting most of our veggies through the warmer months of the year. And then we mm -hmm. revert to the seed or the egg, and then it's just these small, slow-going sprouts through the colder months. But yeah, our mayflies and caddisflies in freestone kind of natural settings, we're going to see hatching in spring through fall, typically. In tailwaters, here in the Rockies, we have a lot of bottom-release tailwaters where we get unseasonably warm water sucked off the bottom of a reservoir midwinter, and that can initiate an early hatch, which isn't natural, but happens in these systems. So we can see some mayflies hatching in the middle of winter. The caddisflies, they're going to stick to spring through fall, 
our stoneflies and our midges, we're going to see um, hatching all four seasons, depending on the species. But when they aren't hatching, then their legs are just laying dormant. I mean, waiting for I, the right conditions. I, I think you know the, the larvae are going to be really small. I think they're going to typically hatch pre-winter. Okay. But again, I mean, it's, you're going to have a hard time telling a, a midge larva from a caddis larva through the winter. A lot of times, just because they're so small, you would need uh, some good magnification. Yeah, what well, you were saying, like the mayfly was six to twelve months under the water, so so they could do all their nymph growing, so to speak, through the winter, right? They're and very then, slow. And, yep. Yeah. Whereas the Okay, so, and the same thing with the caddis, 48 to 50 weeks, right, under the water. Okay, so let's talk about the midges then. What's their life cycle, first of all? So, we are going to have larva, pupa, adult. No case patterns, no case life cycles. Midges are abundant, literal tons per river mile. And what they're lacking in size, they're making up for in quantities, and they're resilient. They can be prolific at every elevation, they can be coming out of mine tailings and sewage outlets, and, and they do really well. So they don't mind poor water quality. We have almost 17,000 species of midges in North America, and I would love it if all of your listeners come to a fly fishing and let me sell them a midge pattern for every species. That would be wonderful. <laughs> I'll retire. Um, yeah. But yeah. Yeah, larva, pupa, which is our merger, and then our dries. I was reading, Peter, do you get National Geographic? By chance? Not for a number of years. I used to. Yeah. There's an article in this month's issue. I don't have it by my side here. I, I didn't think I'd be referencing it. But they're talking about the number of insects that we have identified and the estimate of the number of insects that we have not identified. And it's mind-blowing. I mean, what you just said about the number of species of midges, I mean, they're talking about hundreds of thousands that we've identified of insects, and then like 10 times that or something that we, we haven't even identified yet. And I thought that was just really astounding. They were doing a study of, and you appreciate this, down in the Amazon, and they had erected a tower, and they were taking samples of flies at different levels on the tower going up into the yeah. canopy, and they were finding insects that live only at certain levels. <laughs> in the forest. I love it. I love uh, it. That, I mean, yeah. we've got so much to it, learn. Yeah. Yeah. It was crazy. And they were like super excited to go, we're discovering flies that we never saw before because we were always looking at the ground, dead animals on the ground or, or honey or flowers or whatever that they're attracted to. And then they, so they baited them all the way up this and were collecting species they didn't even know existed to, to date. So anyway, good article. And yeah. I'm not a biologist or entomologist, <laughs> but I was really interesting to me. Okay. Those so, are my type of geeks. I love it. Yeah, you'd love the article, yeah. Maybe I'll copy it and send it to you. So we've identified the life cycle for the midge. And now midges also are highly prevalent in lakes as well as rivers, right? Right, yeah. So a lot of our coronamids are burrowing-type midges that spend their larva life cycle down in the, the low-oxygen silt and muck on the bottom of still water systems. Yeah, very prolific. And, uh, again, almost 17,000 species. They can be the major food source in a lot of these lakes. And they grow big trout. Your camelope rainbows, they're right. predominantly fed on really large coronamids. I'm talking tens, big coronamids. So what here we're imitating three different stages of the life cycle, but primarily, is it primarily the pupa that we fish most or larva? 
Right. What would you say? Yeah, so in live water systems, in moving water, we'll fish all three life cycles because all three okay. are continuously being washed up off the river. I mean, these are small invertebrates, very easily dislodged from the bottom of the river. So the larva, the pupa, and the drives all on the menu. In lakes, it's going to be because the larva are predominantly, other than some of our mosquitoes that the larva kind of spend that life cycle, life stage kind of mid-column, it's going to be predominantly coronamids, and the larva is inaccessible. So we're fishing pupa and dries predominantly in still water. Okay, okay. And Les Hera in Utah is asking, what flies best imitate these midges in all three life cycles? Right. So let's. we got to go to, I mean, there's a lot of really hot, flashy patterns like Greg Garcia's Rojo midge or the tailwater assassin or some of these that are a little bit flashier and more exaggerated. But because there are so many species of midge, I feel like you're going to get the most coverage over the most waters, most seasons, the largest region by fishing generalist patterns. So stuff like the black beauty, the miracle midge, which are both unweighted midge larvae, the zebra midge, excellent. Zebra midge pupa, essentially the same pattern with a little bit of a thicker thorax. Top secret midge is another excellent emerger. So, and then for dries moving to the surface, the emerger life stage between that mid-column to struggling through the surface are probably our most productive. It's where you get that, the greatest concentration of these small bugs. So those patterns that are struggling at the surface of the water and are suspended in the surface tension, like the mole fly or our quill midge emerger that are kind of half in, half out of that surface, super productive. And then as we move to like our true dry midges, I fish something like the Griffiths gnat and maybe a couple of colors. The traditional peacock, maybe a blonde kind of Cahill color or an olive, and you just match with those zebra midges, top secret midges, and mole flies and, and Griffiths gnats, you just match 9,000 of our 17,000 species. Yeah, yeah, pretty simple patterns to tie, yeah. Just from what I've seen, a lot of cover the different colors, reds, browns, blacks, greens, and yeah, different sizes, and like you say, you're covering all kinds of, of ground there. Okay, what about the midges' lifespan? Not very long, I would suspect, huh? Not very long. You can have, depending on the species, multiple generations per year. So for some of our southern U.S. anglers, I mean, they might get chewed on by six generations of the same family of mosquito in a season. So very quick life cycle from egg to pupa to adult and back again. Um, some of our midges might only spend half an hour out of the water before they mate and die. So it's uh, a very quick turnaround and lots of generations in a season. And, and again, they're hatching all four seasons. I feel like some of the local legends here on our tailwaters, Pat or, or Pat Dorsey or Landon Mayer, typically at least once a, or twice a season, they'll post some videos of adult midges crawling all over the snowbanks. So uh, you get a little window of dry fly fishing all year round. Yeah, yeah. In fact, a lot of those patterns you mentioned were Pat Dorsey patterns that I recognized. He's a hell of a uh, tire. Rick Takahashi, yeah. Landon, all great guys. Juan yeah. Ramirez, Shea Gunkel, a lot of great tires. Yeah, Colorado's full of them. Good. So let's finish off with stonefly. We're going to come in right on time here, it looks like. So life cycle of the stonefly. Let's go there. Right. So there's only two really dominant life cycles in our stoneflies. And while they hatch all four seasons, they have a very long nymph life cycle. So our stoneflies will typically take one to three years underwater as a nymph before they migrate to the side of the river and crawl out of the water, almost like storming the beach on D-Day. And then they spend one to two weeks as an adult out of the river. So we have nymphs, we have adults, 
and we don't have emerger patterns because they are not foolishly swimming up through the water column where they're going to get poached by trout. So just two life stages. Best patterns, I'm going to go back to Pat's patterns. The Pat's rubber leg is probably my favorite stonefly nymph. I mean, another really easy pattern to, to tie, but these long rubber legs imitate the antennas, the legs, the tail filaments, and they kick and churn in the water at a lot of awesome secondary motion, very realistic. And then for dry patterns, something like the stimulator, a very traditional generalist, fishing in a couple sizes of colors, you've matched many of our 411 stonefly species. But I've moved more and more in my dry patterns to incorporating rubber legs into my dries as well. Something like the Chubby Chernobyl, the Super Stimulator, or the PMX, Parachute Madam X. They have these rubber legs that stand broad out the front and the back. And once those hit the current, they skitter and they move a lot, which is very similar to how that adult stonefly will skitter and run over the surface of the water. So I like some rubber legs in my, my dry stoneflies. Yeah, I've been seeing those. Yeah, a stimulator with rubber legs. Yeah, and so that's imitating when the adult is trying to get off the, well, coming back to the water or lifting off the water? Coming back to the water. So that's the okay. egg laying behavior of the adult. Okay. And so, yeah, drop that right next to an undercut bank and let that drift and skitter across the surface a little bit and just cue the Jaws music because here comes that big brown from under the bank to slam it. They love that movement. Yeah, yeah. What else? Now, the stoneflies, how many generations would you expect? Well, you've got this long lifespan of the nymph. So is you generally, and we hear about like the salmon fly hatch only happening during two to three week period. So are they generally just hatching once a year then? They are. are Staggered then? Well, I mean, you will see within a given section of water, the nymphs emerging and hatching that adult life cycle. Again, depending on the hatch, maybe it's a month on this section of water, maybe it's a couple weeks. And typically, it's going to be triggered by temperature. So we're going to see this starting at lower elevation in the river system. And it's colder up higher, right? Longer nights, thinner air. And so as you move up over the matter of weeks or months, you can follow that hatch moving upstream as that water temperature gradually increases upstream, it will trigger that movement, that hatch upstream. But yeah, it's like a lot of these hatches are, are salmon flies or Taranarsis. We have some East Coast varieties. We have some the West Coast and Rocky Mountain varieties. Multiple generations underwater at any given time. Three generations underwater. It takes three years for most of our nymphs right. to, to finally get big enough to hatch. So you have size 22 salmon flies that just hatched out of the egg next to size 12 salmon fly nymphs that are a year old next to size eight salmon fly nymphs that are two-year-olds, and the four, size fours are just saying goodbye. They're leaving home, and they're crawling out of the water. So depending on our hatches, you'll have multiple generations sharing the water together. Okay, okay. We have some other questions to finish off here. You had mentioned Rick Takahashi. Well, he asked a question, and Tim, Rick's here in, in, in Colorado and has been a guest on the show as well and wrote a book on midges, something to check out. So he says, Peter, what aquatic insect is underutilized when fishing still waters, and what patterns would you suggest to imitate them? What are your favorite fly patterns for fishing still waters? Well, Rick gave me $20, so let me find the oh, script. Okay. Modern Midges by Rick Takahashi. <laughs> it is an awesome book. I mean, when you say the guy wrote the book on it, Rick's one of my favorite people in the industry and hell of a tire and a really fun guy, but underutilized. We get to Stillwater. I think a lot of us 
we think Calabatus. We think, if you're in the Midwest or the Great Lakes region, we think hexes. The hex nymph and emergers are really good. We tie some glow-in-the-dark hexes for that night and evening hatch. Uh, that can be a lot of fun. I think, but again, outside of the mayflies and the few caddisflies that are hatching, damselflies most people are keyed into. I think people are afraid to fish large midges. When, like the gentleman who asked the question from St. Louis earlier, he's talking about 24s and 26s. Um, when we're we're talking some of our lakes like Pyramid Lake, we're fishing eights and tens. When we're getting up into Canada and the Pacific Northwest, we're fishing twelves and tens. And so even in our our lakes like Spinney and Terrell, we should be fishing fourteens and twelves at times. So I think we need to start fishing larger coronamid patterns, larger pupa patterns, and and that's what grows those big chunky uh, Spinney and Antero and Kamloop type trout. The Omac lakes up in Washington State, big coronamids. There's also some lesser-known streamers that we should be fishing from the Delaney Lakes in northern Colorado. There's sticklebacks, which is a, a species of minnow that a lot of us don't think of, but some dark or marabou, black marabou muddlers can do really well to imitate some of those sticklebacks, which grow those huge cutthroats and browns in some of those lakes. So, yeah, I think sampling the water is going to tell you what size you need to be fishing, staying in the water. But, yeah, big coronamids maybe some more hex patterns, and then some sticklebacks just to, to mix it up a bit. Good, good. Yeah, and uh, we did get a, a question along these same lines. Ted Merchant in Massachusetts is asking, what's the best midday fly to use for still water? I guess he's mm. kind of mornings and, and evenings are always great on still water, but midday, kind of tough sometimes, right? It is. So, I mean, we're going deeper, right? I mean, I think Massachusetts, I think the Northeast, First of all, I think about huge brook trout, but maybe that's getting more into Maine. But the sun's high overhead. It's going to be forcing uh, a lot of our trout deeper just for cover from terrestrial predators. So I'm going deeper, and it's going to initiate a lot of hatches. We're going to see a lot of coronamids hatching midday. So I would be doing that. And then I'd probably be tying on some type three or five sinking lines and trying some leech patterns, doing some slow retrieves, some streamer fishing midday. I'm fishing a couple of rods. I'm always observing what's happening on the water because the menu's changing. And then I'm getting feedback from the trout. So if I am nymphing and I might have a slide indicator rig of some sort, I'm going to be, if it's a lake with scud, I'm going to be setting up some scuds and midges at different depths. And I'm going to see, all right, the, the fish are, are keying in on all of scud at six feet or they're keying in on you know black coronavids at, at 12 feet. And then I'm doubling up, I'm tripling up. They're telling me what they want to eat. So I'm centering my rig, I'm multiplying what they're eating, and I'm really uh, covering that zone where they're feeding. It's going to be changing throughout the season, but that's what I'd, I'd start doing. Okay, okay. And Andy Cordova asks, he says, one day while fishing a lake in Northern California, we caught only one fish and it was on a woolly booger. The throat revealed that it was loaded with daphnia. What fly, if any, would be the next to tie on? I've, I've seen this as well. I used to manage a, a ranch in South Park, Colorado, and the Daphnia were thick, and they're just small, green, flea-like vertebrates, and I mean, two millimeters. They are teeny. So what's the best way to, to fish a Daphnia? And I saw this question coming up, and I'm thinking that drowning an olive size, maybe 22 Griffiths gnat, we tie them in olive, and I think that's a cluster pattern that can fish very well for a cluster of midges or whatever, but that olive color in that clump could look like maybe four or five daphnia mating together in a little clump. 
that's the closest thing I could think of is drowning some olive gripus gnats. Yeah, yeah, that's a good solution because that's a tough one. I've heard that before. And kind of people just give up because they don't know what to do with that. But yeah, good answer, good answer. Any closing thoughts, Peter, about any final tips for folks before we march on here? Well, we have covered a ton of information tonight. And I think probably a lot of folks, their heads are spinning. But uh, <laughs> these are all topics that, that we've fleshed out with individual articles and on our video have animated these characteristics and help people to actually identify these are the characteristics of a midge larva in your box and on the water, your midge pupa in your box and on the water. And together then we go into those disorganized fly boxes of hundreds of bugs or thousands of bugs. We pull them out, we categorize them, we repack them together row by row. So this is attainable. Don't worry, trout don't speak Latin. They don't know the names of the flies in your box. I think if you can get close in size, color, and profile, and you understand what you have, you're going to save money in the shop. You're going to be on the hatch faster on the water, and you're going to catch more fish and have fun. Watercolor or paint with oils, your method of nymphing, of matching the hatch, of presentation, whatever really floats your boat, keep doing that. And I am a resource, as is my team here at Ascent Fly Fishing. We're available on the shop number. We're available on social media, on Instagram, and we're available uh, via email. So we'd love to, to hook up your community with flies or just information if that's, if that's all they're looking for. Terrific. Terrific. Great offer, Peter. Thanks for that. And I hope everybody takes you up on uh, both your information and your, your fly selections that you have. And we're going to give away a couple of those streaming videos on uh, creating order in your fly box. So looking forward to that. See who wins that. So stick with me, Peter. We have a few giveaways here to end the night, and uh, we're going to be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International, one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, and, of course, your streaming videos. So uh, stick with me, and we'll do that in just a minute. Reeling and Healing Midwest is a nonprofit organization that champions fly fishing retreats for women surviving and battling all types of cancer. Their mission is to introduce women to the healing waters of the sport of fly fishing and provide a one-of-a-kind experience on and off the water. This is accomplished through the elements of fly fishing, positive camaraderie, peer coaching, nurture, and support network, which in turn renews the spirit and hope of each participant. Reeling and Healing Midwest is in need of trout flies, waders, leaders, fishing equipment, and other items. To view their current wish list and to learn how you can support their retreats, visit fishon.org. That's fishon.org. Or call them at 616-855-4017. 616-855-4017. And just a reminder to everyone, before you leave our website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what did you think of the show? Just click on the link and leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. So now it's time to give away a few prizes. The winners for the drawings are randomly selected from the show's registration database. If you didn't register for the, uh, tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for the next show uh, so you don't want to miss out on your chance at some of the great prizes that we have to give away. If you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show and provide you with information on how to receive your prize. So first thing we're giving away is that one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org, flyfishersinternational.org. If you don't win tonight, go join anyway. Help support their cause. Okay, so our winner for that, let me fire up my database here. And our winner for that is Tom 
Collison in Arizona. So Tom, congratulations on winning that one-year membership, and we'll get with you after the show so we can get you signed up for that. And our second um, prize is a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, courtesy of AmatoBooks.com, great resource for books and periodicals on fly fishing and other outdoor activities as well. And our winner for that is Alan Coop in New Jersey. Alan Coop in New Jersey. So congratulations, gentlemen, on winning that tonight. And uh, I know you'll enjoy your prizes. And now we're going to give away a couple of the streaming videos that Peter has uh, so graciously offered up tonight. And we are looking at two winners here. So the first and second person that gets the answer in correctly will win a copy of uh, Peter's Creating Order in Your Fly Box. And, and you can also get this on Peter's website at Ascent. So if you don't win and you want to check that out, you can get it there as well. So question is a two-part question. Two-part question. How many months do mayflies stay underwater and how many years do stoneflies stay underwater? Okay, how many months do mayflies stay under the water and how many years do the stoneflies stay under the water? So, Peter, we'll see. Making it a little difficult tonight, but let's see if we can get some winners. Now, there's a slight delay before they actually hear us, and then we have to wait for some typing. So now, Peter, it's up to you to entertain them while we wait. All right. Yeah, I see a hand in the back of the classroom. Uh, someone's waving. Back there? Okay, yeah. Okay, I got somebody answered with no name and uh, one in three, which doesn't tell me anything. Keep trying. Keep trying. Yeah, I was looking for a range. So I got here 12 months and three years. That's the high side of things. What's the range? I got another one in three. We'll see if people, six to eight for mayflies, three years for stoneflies. Hmm, people weren't taking good notes here. Oh, hold it. Mayflies, six months to a year, and stoneflies, one to three years. I, I think that's a winner. Ding, ding, ding. Right, Peter? Yeah. yeah Andy it. Cordova. Yeah, our person who asked the last question. Andy, you just got yourself a copy of that. And uh, so now it should be easy for the rest of you. 12 months, mayflies, three to four years, stoneflies, um, not quite there. Three and three, no. Someone can't cop copy Andy's test. Yeah, right. somebody will get smart here in a minute. No, lots of answers, but there we go. Six to 12 months, mayflies, and one to three years, stones. So Mike, answer, honestly, did you copy from Andy? <laughs> if you did, it just means you're damn smart. Yeah, yeah. So we've got Andy and Mike, and I've got your uh, email address. Is that all you need from them, Peter, to get them going on Email that? address and uh, first and last name, and, and I will email them uh, a code for the streamable online version of the video tomorrow. Right. Okay, good, good. Okay, so guys, you don't need to do anything. I've already got your email and your names, and I'll uh, forward those over to Peter, and he'll get you set up. I know you're going to enjoy it. And for the rest of you, go to Peter's site and buy a copy. Uh, you can get a DVD as well, right, Peter? Both streaming. Yeah, absolutely. I have a lot of DVDs. Buy a DVD. Yeah, so, yeah, it's great. I've been through it and need to go through it again. It's a great tool to 
to help you get organized and learn about the bugs, right? Right, Peter? It's uh, Absolutely. Yeah, it's a tutorial as well. So thank you so much, Peter, for offering that up tonight, and, and congratulations uh, on you guys that won those. Peter, I really appreciate taking your time out. I know you're a busy man, both business and family, but I appreciate you, you sharing your knowledge and experience with us tonight. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for letting me join you. And, uh, yeah, I feel so blessed to be a part of this community. And, yeah, I hope uh, folks will reach out uh, whenever they have a question or, or if they need some bugs. Yeah, and Peter also joins us on Clubhouse every now and then. So if you want to talk more with Peter, check out Clubhouse, like I said at the beginning of the show, and join us there. He's one of the, the regulars there. So hope to see more folks out there on Clubhouse. And hopefully you've all found the podcast archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link in the top line menu. You'll find over 330 shows now I think we have. Uh, you can search by keyword, keyword phrase, whatever, and then you'll find all kinds of great interviews, many of the, the greats in fly fishing, uh, and tons of things to learn there. So, so check it out and, and go exploring. Our next broadcast will be on April 21st, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern, and I'm interviewing Blake Jackson. And uh, Blake's a professional guy. The topic of the show is going to be Fly Fishing Central Wyoming. Blake's a professional guide from Casper, Wyoming, and he specializes in his guiding his clients to Wyoming's great fisheries like Miracle Mile, Great Reef, Fremont Canyon, and some of the local lakes up there. So whether it's a trophy trout or a spooky carp, Blake knows where to go and how to get hooked up. So join us and learn about these incredible fisheries and how to fish them. We'd love to have you during that show. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Lee's Ferry Anglers, Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing, and Rico Puglisi Flies for sponsoring our show tonight. And don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.